We're going through a section of scripture that I like to call spiritual cat scans. You see, at the end of the Old Testament, God uses 12 prophets to x-ray the nations. He reveals their hidden sins and he prescribes his remedies for them. So far, we've tackled six of these prophecies. We've got six more to go, beginning today with a neglected Nahum. Now, just out of curiosity, before this past week, preparing for this morning, how many of you have never read the book of Nahum? Raise your hand. There you go. That's what I thought. Well, let me begin with a quiz this morning. What do Dan Rather, Wolf Blitzer, Christian Amanpour, Peter Arnett, and Nahum have in common? Answer, they're all famous war correspondents. You see, during the recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the U.S. military allowed news reporters to go into battle embedded with the troops. The term war correspondent suddenly took on a whole new meaning. Newsmen traveling in armored vehicles became subject to enemy fire and live combat. They slept out on the battlefield. They ate those vacuum-packed MREs. Chris Reed, a former embedded journalist for NBC, he recalled his combat experience. He said, I cover Congress now. I wear a coat and tie. I go home every night and sleep in a bed. It's safe and secure and a bit too predictable. I'm afraid whatever I cover in the future will never match the adrenaline-induced, heart-in-my-throat sense of anticipation I felt while embedded with the U.S. Marines on their march from Kuwait to Baghdad. I would imagine so. Well, Nahum also reports from the battlefield. Nahum is embedded with the troops. He was probably never literally in the line of fire. Verse 1 suggests that Nahum saw it all in a vision. But his prophecy reads like an eyewitness observer. In his vision, Nahum is ducking arrows. Swords and spears are clanging in his ears. He writes of the horrors of war. He draws word pictures of shields and uniforms and chariots and weapons and troop movements. And when Nineveh falls to the invaders and its army runs for its life, when blood fills the streets and rulers are led away in chains, Nahum is there to report on the slaughter and to remind Assyria of the reason for their defeat. They insulted the God of glory and they made him jealous. This book begins with an introduction Verse 1, the burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. Nahum lived in the 7th century B.C. An approximate date for the book would be about 630 B.C. He calls his prophecy the burden against Nineveh. The word burden means heavy message. It's a word from God with dramatic implications. Now, Nahum was born in a town called Elkosh. We have no idea where Elkosh was. Some scholars suggest different places, but, but there's nothing authoritative. To me, though, the best intel on Nahum's background comes from the Sea of Galilee. 
There is a town on the famous North Shore where Jesus did the lion's share of his miracles. It's called Kafar Nam, or the village of Nam, or the New Testament calls it Capernaum. Capernaum is where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law of a spiking fever, and a man with a withered hand on a Sabbath day. It's where he healed a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. It's where he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Capernaum was Jesus' headquarters in the Galilee. It's interesting, the town that saw the Lord's miracles was first to hear the Lord's burden. Now, wherever Nahum lived, the focus of his prophecy was elsewhere. His eyes were on the superpower of his day, Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. Nahum was assigned to cover the fall of the capital city, Nineveh. And guess who would have loved to apply for Nahum's job? You remember the other prophet we talked about earlier who hated Nineveh? Jonah, you're right. You remember much to his chagrin, Jonah was instrumental in Nineveh's revival. 150 years earlier, Jonah had preached and Nineveh had repented and had turned to God. This was the outcome that Jonah had tried to avoid. Remember, Jonah was a bigot. He hated Assyrians. And he figured if they repented, that God would be so merciful that he'd just forgive them and afford them a second chance. That's why Nineveh was east and Jonah boarded a boat headed west. And you know the story. Jonah was intercepted by a storm and tossed into the sea by desperate sailors and redirected by a hungry whale. The revival that Jonah sparked was the greatest spiritual awakening of all time. A million plus people turned from their sin to follow the one true God. But that was a century and a half earlier. The revival hadn't lasted. It had died out in just a few decades. Assyria, sadly, had reverted back to its idols and its barbarous ways. And now Nahum comes on the scene. And he informs everyone that God has said there'll be no more chances for Assyria. Nineveh is set to be destroyed. God will finally judge her evil. Now Nahum begins his prophecy with three bold words. He says, God is jealous. God is jealous. Now often when we think of jealousy, we picture a person battling their insecurities, a person with a low sense of self-worth, You know, the guy just doesn't feel lovable, and so he finds it hard to believe that he's truly loved. And he develops this kind of unwarranted jealousy. He's constantly questioning and doubting his loved one's loyalty. This kind of preoccupation is a character flaw. It's a weakness that usually drives the loved one away. This is a personal paranoia, and this is nothing like God's jealousy. To help you understand a righteous jealousy, I want to refer to a recent news story. And I realize I'm wading into circumstances here without first-hand knowledge. I'm basing my comments solely on media reports, and that's dangerous. Yet, this is, this is out there. You, you, you're aware of this. I'm sure you've heard 
of the celebrity golfer who pretended to be a family man, all the while running around carrying on adulterous liaisons and sexual escapades with multiple mistresses. Have you heard of this? He was supposed to be putting on a private course, membership only. Instead, he had opened it up to the public. And here's what I want to do. I want to focus on his wife. This woman has been to hell and back. I mean, in recent weeks, she's been humiliated by her husband's behavior. Can you imagine? She's been betrayed and embarrassed and disgraced and in the most public of arenas. By no fault of her own, she's been mocked and made fun of by the mistresses and by the national media and by every talk show host. And I'll bet she's angry. I say justifiably so. If I did to my wife what this fella has done to his wife, I'd have the grip of a forearm sticking out of my mouth and the head of a driver sticking somewhere else. Here's my point. No person should be expected to put up with that kind of infidelity and betrayal. Even the Bible gives this wife a way out. Here's a woman who's no doubt jealous. But her jealousy isn't born out of some insecurity or some weakness or some paranoia or some insufficiency of character. Just the opposite is true. From all indications, she's a strong woman who knows she deserves better treatment. How dare anyone dishonor her in such a bold and cavalier way? She's loved this man. She's been faithful. She expects his loyalty, and rightly so. Her jealousy is righteous, not evil. And if the news reports I'm reading are true, this billion-dollar golfer's estranged wife is about to hit him with some green fees of her own. Well, welcome to the message of Nahum. This is God's jealousy. God isn't some insecure, weak, paranoid person. God has no lack or need for me or you. God needs us like we need a hole in the head. God loves us. And in a myriad of ways, He's been loyal to us. And He's been faithful and He's been gracious. In fact, He sacrificed His only Son so that you and I could be forgiven. I mean, all the blessings I could add to that list would only pale in comparison. Is there any doubt that God deserves our allegiance and our trust? One of my Christmas presents this year was season 7 of the TV show 24. I don't know if you've seen this show. But in 24, Special Agent Jack Bauer, he runs around stopping terrorists. I mean, at a dizzying pace. Jack gets falsely accused. He gets chemically and physically tortured. He gets shot at. He gets exposed to toxins. You name it, Jack suffers it. It's amazing all the sacrifices that Jack Bauer makes for his country. And yet nobody wants to give the poor guy any credit. It's frustrating. Nobody trusts him. I actually got angry watching the show, how Jack was being mistreated. I wanted to write a letter. And then I realized it was a television show. 
You know, finally, at the end of the day, Jack is pleading with the president, and he says, you can trust me. And president, you can, because Jack has proven himself faithful for seven seasons, 24 episodes each. And this is what God is saying in Nahum. Why don't you trust me? God is jealous of our trust. He's proven his loyalty over and over at every turn. He has been faithful to us even when we've been unfaithful to him. Why do we forsake him the first time life doesn't go exactly as we planned? Or when circumstances take a turn that we didn't want? Hasn't God earned our trust? Doesn't God deserve better? Isn't it right that God be trusted? Now, I'm not sure what's going to happen between the golfer and his wife, but I know after Nineveh's indiscretions, God was ready for a divorce. And the prophet Nahum was sent to deliver the paperwork. Well, in chapter 1, Nahum provides us a grand and glorious portrait of God. And if your idea of God is some father time ushering in the new year, you know, an old guy with a gray beard and a white robe holding a sickle and an hourglass, I hope you cast that notion forever from your mind because it couldn't be further from the truth. Chapter 1 of Nahum portrays a bigger-than-life God who feels and who cares and who acts justly and who isn't afraid to do what's right. The prophet writes, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. And he reserves wrath for his enemies. Verse 3 sort of tempers the picture. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, but he will not at all acquit the wicked. God is amazingly patient. You remember in the days of Noah, the world grew so wicked that there was only one recourse. Just wash it out and start over. And yet God waited 120 years for Noah to build and for Noah to preach, hoping that the world would repent. You know, God's wrath amasses slowly. He never races down the judgment path. God often pauses and he pleads with us to repent. But never mistake his patience for his approval or for his apathy. For in the end, the wicked will be judged. Nobody gets off the hook except the person who comes to the cross. Ever heard of William Silva, age 44? He was recently arrested in San Jose, California on a burglary charge. It was Mr. Silva's 550th arrest. This man's rap sheet fills 127 feet of computer paper. And yet, what about you and me? How long is your rap sheet? Or your sin sheet? How many times have you violated God's law? Or broken God's heart? How many times have you been busted and arrested by God's Spirit? Oh, God is slow to anger. He tolerated Nineveh's sin for 130 years, gave her a century-long pardon. But there's a point when God's tolerance runs out. 
Don't presume on God's patience. He will not at all acquit the wicked, Nahum says. In fact, Nahum pictures God's raw power. Notice the middle of verse 3. He says, the Lord has his way. The Lord is strong. His arm is mighty. Never forget it. God's way ultimately prevails. Frank Sinatra might sing, I did it my way. Burger King might suggest, have it your way. But if I were you, I'd listen to Nahum. Buck and kick all you'd like, but in the end, the Lord will have the final say. The Lord has his way. Nahum pictures God dancing on the wind. He says he controls the sea. He dries up the rivers, lush, fertile areas of Israel that turn green and flower. Places like Bashan and Carmel suddenly wither at God's command. He melts mountains. He causes earthquakes. God's fury reminds Nahum of a volcano. In verse 6, who can endure the fierceness of his anger? Now, don't misunderstand. I know God loves me. God is kind toward me because I'm in Christ, but I never take His grace for granted. I fear what He could do to me. Nahum says in verse 9, What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. In other words, you don't box with God and win. You don't do it. It's foolish and futile to fight against God, to resist His will. Scheme against God and your plans are going to fail. Notice the next line. Affliction will not rise up a second time. God is saying to Nineveh, you were warned once, now don't push me. Have you ever heard this expression, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. In other words, out of the goodness of my heart, I might choose to trust someone and get snookered. But I am a fool if I let myself get conned a second time. And why do we think the same doesn't apply to God? And yet I know people who try to play God. They they try to shuck and jive and weave and bob and try to get around God's will. They try to dodge God. And you know what happens? They get smacked down. God smacks you down. God is the tackler who never gets juked. God says, hey, you can do this once, but it ain't happening twice. Nahum is warning Nineveh, next time it's judgment, not mercy. You know, which brings up a great strategy for the new year. You've been looking for a new year strategy? Here it is right here. Why not align yourself with God's will for your life? Why not try that this year? In your family, in your finances, in your career, in your ministry, why not do it God's way this year? You know, it's best to find God's will. Sink your life up with Him and stop conspiring against Him. Verse 7 is hope. The Lord is good. We're learning a lot about God in Nahum. The Lord is jealous. The Lord doesn't acquit the wicked. The Lord refuses to be played. The Lord has it his way. But also, and this is good, the Lord is good. You can trust his mercies because he's good. Nahum says the Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. 
And he knows those who trust in him. I like that. He knows those who are trusting in him. On a planet crowded with billions of people, God senses that one person who reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. At Kepharnaim, God healed a woman who was in the crowd, but reached out and touched the hem of his garment. And God does it over and over and over again. He knows those who trust in him. And he brings healing and help to them, for the Lord is good. Now in Nahum's day, Assyria was the greatest empire the earth had ever seen. Nineveh's kings held sway from the Tigris to the Nile, the entire Fertile Crescent. And yet today, unless you're a Bible student or a Middle East archaeologist, you probably never even heard of Assyria. Which reminds me, by the way, of the woman who married the archaeologist. You hear about this? A woman married an archaeologist and when asked what she saw in her new husband, she answered, she said, well, the older I get, the more interested he becomes in me. Good idea. You think about that. You'll get it later. Verse 14 tells us why Assyria was so soon forgotten. The Lord commanded Assyria, Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Assyria was great in its day, but God chooses to make it a footnote. Nahum goes on to say that God will cut off Nineveh's idols In fact, he threatens the Assyrians with ominous words. He says, I will dig your grave, for you are vile. When God says, I'm going to dig your grave, that's not a good thing. And we see the grave that God digs for the Assyrians in chapter 2. In 612 B.C., joint armies of the Medes and the Babylonians, they storm the city of Nineveh. Chapters 2 and 3 sort of provide a play-by-play of the city's invasion and conquest. And here Nahum writes as a war correspondent. It's as if he's there on location in the city. He's embedded with the troops. Notice verse 1. He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort. Watch the road. Strengthen your flanks. Fortify your power mightily. As Nahum writes, we hear the sounds of battle. Commanders are barking orders and chariots are rumbling through the streets and drawn swords are clanging. You remember by this point in history, Assyria was Israel's arch enemy. In fact, in 722, a hundred years earlier, Assyria had sacked Samaria, the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom, and had scattered Israelis all across the empire. Well, verse 2 says that God is about to defeat Assyria and restore Israel to its place, to its excellency. In verse 3, Nahum describes the invaders. He says, the shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. They're dressed in scarlet. Their uniforms are in scarlet. Their shields have been dyed red. You see, ancient armies, they liked the color red. For one, red was the color of intimidation. Like bulldog jerseys on a Saturday afternoon, red made the opposition quiver and shake and fear. But also, red camouflaged wounds sustained in the battle. If you started to bleed, no one could tell. The red blood blended into the red uniform. Which reminds me, by the way, 
of the captain of the British battleship. One day, his first mate rushes into the cabin and he announces, he says, Captain, there's a Spanish galleon on our port side. The captain barks out his orders, Quick, bring me my red vest and man the battle stations. The next day, the first mate runs into the captain's quarters and he Again, he shouts out, Captain, there's a Spanish galleon on our starboard side. The captain answers, Quick, bring me my red vest and man the battle stations. Well, the sailor, he just had to know. He said, Captain, why do you always ask for your red vest? And the brave captain answered back. He says, Well, if I'm ever hit in battle, I don't want my men to see me bleeding and lose heart. First mate shook his head. Wow, what courage. Well, the next day, the first mate, he rushed into the captain's cabin with terrible news. He says, Captain, he says, you'll never believe it. We're surrounded by the whole Spanish armada. A surprised captain shouted, Quick, bring me my red vest, my brown pants, and man the battle stations. Well, you get the idea. Verse 6 tells us how Nineveh was conquered. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. Verse 8, Nineveh of old was like a pool of water. Now they flee away. In other words, a washout toppled Nineveh. The Greek historian Diodorus Siculus lived around 20 B.C. And he wrote that the fall of Nineveh was due to abnormal flooding of the Tigris River. Two tributaries of the Tigris flowed under the city's walls. And when the river swelled, overflowing its banks, it washed out about a two and a half mile stretch of the wall that surrounded Nineveh. It created this gaping hole the invaders used to enter the city. Nineveh became easy pickings for the enemy army. It's amazing that God gave Nahum a detailed prophecy predicting the downfall of the Assyrian capital 20 years before it actually came to pass. Proof of the inerrancy of God's word. Well, Nahum chapter 3.1 tells us, Woe to the bloody city. You see, Assyria was infamously cruel. Babylon is remembered in history for its idolatry. Its assault on God. Assyria also worshipped idols, but it's best known in historical annals for its assault on its fellow man. Assyria was barbarous and bloody and brutal. Assyria angered God by attacking the image of God in its fellow man. In the ancient world, kings like Shalmanazar and Tiglath-Pelazir, not exactly household names today, Nevertheless, these people were feared by millions and millions of people. These were the Assyrian kings. And they were brutal. They committed awful, shameful atrocities. And then they bragged about it afterwards. Throughout the ruins of Nineveh, archaeologists have found inscriptions of the brutal boasts of these Assyrian kings. Here's just a few. Many within the border of my own land I flayed and spread their skins upon the walls. In other words, prisoners were skinned alive, and their flesh was used as wallpaper. Another king boasted, I cut off their heads and formed them in piles. 3,000 captives I burned with fire. I cut off the limbs of the officers, the royal officers who rebelled. From sun, 
I cut off their hands and their fingers. And from other, I cut off their noses, their ears, and their fingers. Of many, I put out their eyes. Another king boasted, I bound their heads to posts round about the city. You see, Assyrian kings, they like to bury their enemies alive inside the walls of their buildings. Defeated kings were led around on dog collars and housed in kennels. Tactics of torture and humiliation were perfected by the Assyrians. In fact, here was a famous Assyrian torture. A spear was driven through a man's gut and out the top of his head. Then the opposite end of the spear was stuck into the ground, so the guy was left hanging and squirming, and people would sit there and just watch him die. This was the precursor for what would later develop into crucifixion. Here's what all of this means to us today. It means this. God cares not only about how we treat Him, but He also cares about how we treat our fellow human beings. That's what it means. Every person you come in contact with, male or female, young or old, married or single, black or white, born or unborn, crippled or whole, rich or poor, jailbird or free bird, Christian or Jew or Muslim or Mormon or Hindu. Every human carries in them at some level the image and likeness of God. And for that reason alone, humans are owed a degree of respect. This is why the idea of human rights is a distinctively Christian concept. It doesn't come from Islam. The Quran refers to Christians and Jews as infidels. Hinduism assigns and enslaves folks to a tiered caste system. Even Judaism treats Gentiles as unclean and outside of God's love. Only Christianity acknowledges our common creator. And because we were made in His image, every human is owed certain inalienable rights. And yet sometimes, I think we also live in the bloody city. When over a million innocent babies die each year, their only crime being conceived in an uncaring womb, how can there not be blood on somebody's hands? The politicians or the judges that permit the abortion, the voter who puts them in office, the society who doesn't care for the unwed mother who's in trouble. There's blood on somebody's hands. What about the cycle of domestic abuse that accounts for much of the violence in today's society? Ever ignore a situation you should have reported? Or walked away instead of getting involved? I read recently of an 18-year-old gang member in Milwaukee who murdered a 15-year-old girl And at his arrest, the boy was quoted as saying, this is going to wreck my whole summer. It's not like she was the president or anything. She was just a girl. Hey, dads who raise sons to think that way about women, they've got blood on their hands. What about your own anger toward your spouse or your kids or your parents? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. 
But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now granted, the consequences of pulling out a revolver and filling a guy with a few slugs is far more severe than just yelling at him in traffic. Nevertheless, don't any of us get smug and self-righteous. Don't assume that you or I lack violent tendencies. We might be too law-abiding. Or we might lack the nerve to bury a blade in somebody's back. And yet the same anger boils in me that boils in the worst murderer. You see, Jesus is saying, you might not do the deed, but the seed behind the deed lies in my heart as well. Ever heard the expression, if looks could kill? How often have you murdered your boss in cold-blooded gossip? Or stared a hole through a co-worker? Or silenced that neighbor with the barking dog? Or smothered your parents under a mound of indifference? Or injected a lethal poison into the relationship with your spouse? We too can be guilty of violent acts. Oh my, how close do we all live to the bloody city? Along with your black-eyed peas and your cabbage this New Year's, here's a truth to chew on. God cares about how we treat people. God is jealous not only of how we treat Him, but of how we treat others. Christians and non-Christians, believers and unbelievers, good drivers and bad drivers, God loves all people. Jesus died so all people can be saved. All people need to be loved. In fact, the path a person takes to become a Christian also begins when a Christian on that path chooses to love that person. And the best way to love a lost person is to tell them about Jesus. The end of chapter 3 tells us Nineveh is ripe for judgment. In fact, verse 13 accuses Nineveh of cowardice. Nahum says that Assyria fights like a woman. That's what he says, verse 13 of chapter 3. He says, you fight like women. In other words, you fight like a bunch of sissies. Now, now I understand the stereotype here. Yet I've known a few gals that I wouldn't have wanted to meet in a dark alley. In fact, I've always thought that women would make fine soldiers. I mean, think about this for a minute. All you'd have to do with a female soldier, give her a loaded gun, point her at the enemy, and then whisper in her ear, those guys just said you look fat in your uniform. Hey, we're talking about a high body count. But, but Nam says to us here, you fight like a bunch of women. And then Nam closes with a, with a surprising twist. In verses 8 through 10, he mentions the fall of another city, Noamon. History recognizes this city by its Egyptian name, Thebes. It was a wealthy city. It was the treasure of the Nile. And guess who destroyed the city of Thebes? The Assyrians did. And now God says to Nineveh in verse 8, Are you no better than Noamon? In other words, the brutalities the Assyrians used on Thebes are about to be repeated on Nineveh. In other words, what goes around comes around. 
Here's another reason why you need to be careful of how you treat people. What goes around comes around. The golden rule still applies. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Verse 19 sums up God's judgment on Nineveh. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. Apparently nobody regretted the fall of Nineveh. Nations applauded. A cruel city got a taste of its own medicine. I want to wrap up the prophecy of Nahum with an excerpt from the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Ancient History. This is what it says. The disappearance of the Assyrian people will always remain a unique and striking phenomenon of ancient history. Other similar kingdoms and empires indeed passed away, but the people lived on. With the Assyrians, a nation which had existed 2,000 years and had ruled a wide area, lost its independent character. Now historians marvel at the defeat and the disappearance of ancient Nineveh. But to me, this isn't so hard to figure out. When a person or a people only love themselves and care little about how they treat other people, God sees to it that in the end, that person ends up defeated and abandoned and forgotten themselves. It matters how you treat other people. Ultimately, how you treat people will determine how you get treated. Matthew chapter 7 verse 2 says it best. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Nahum sees this, and God brings it to pass. Father, we thank you for your words today. We thank you for this powerful little book of Nahum. It's little in size, but it's big in scope. And it speaks to us many thousands of years later. It seems just as relevant today as it did then. Lord, I pray you'll help us to digest this message today. And we'll start this new year outright. Trusting you. Loving each other. Caring not just about ourselves, but about the people around us. Seeking to live our lives, not against you, but with you and in sync with you. Lord, I pray that you'll encourage us and speak to us today. Help us to meditate on these truths, Lord, as we go. We love you, Lord. We want to walk in your ways. We want to honor you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to worship.